0: Cast. We check the rules on copyright and this is parody, so it's fine. With Ian McDonald, Michael Wright, Josh Hayes, Fiona Porter, Hongming Tang, Jake Stubberg gorman Bin Yu and James Green. The Jobcast, December 2018, Extra Edition Hello and welcome to the Jobcast. I'm Josh and joining me in the studio are Fiona Porter and a very new Hongming Tang. Hello! So, uh, We've heard from Fiona before, I believe. Uh, yes, we have. Yes, uh, but Hong Ming uh, is venturing out from the editing desk uh, in front of the mic for the very first time. So, hello, Hong Ming. Who are you and what do you do? Let's introduce you to the listeners. Great.
1: Uh, hello, I'm, I'm Hong Ming Tang. I'm a second year PhD student at the JVCA here. Um, and basically my PhD project is to study um, how to use automatic algorithms, basically machine learning ones, AI thing. Um, to identify giant radio galaxies in the broad universe, we've used survey data uh, such as the Northern One Like MVSS data or the uh, South of the Sky Survey data. In the future, our algorithms might be used in SCAP surveys or um, Square Kilometer Array surveys um, to actually automatically identify the giant radio galaxies or other radio galaxies as well. Uh, beside my major research, I am also a member of the Radio Galaxy Zoo. Uh, we are now in the phase of Radio Galaxy
0: Zoo 2.0, so hopefully on next year we will launch it. Oh yes, so, Holman, you are actually quite heavily involved in uh, citizen science, right?
2: That's, yes,
0: yes. So the Radio Galaxy Radio Zoo is part part of the Zooniverse project.
2: Correct. Actually, yes,
0: it's a
1: heavily involved uh, Zooniverse project, and uh, Zooniverse now has a. Actually has a mobile site, so it's like like an app platform, so if anyone interested, please attach
0: and download the app. yeah, there we go. look, we definitely don't plug our own work uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um no i I've played around a little bit with um the Zooniverse stuff, and it's really good and uh, Hongming's your your stuff's actually got really high um what's the word I'm looking for here uh number of people that have been involved right it, uh yes, it's k- kind of a big number. Actually, we have 12,000 volunteers about here. 12,000 volunteers. So, if every single one of our Jodcast listeners gets involved, we'll nearly double it. So, come on, guys. Let's uh, go and do some radio astronomy. I never thought I'd say that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I... Oh, I feel slightly dirty. Um, Right. Anyway, so, in the show this time, Michael Wright and Ian McDonald answer your astronomical questions, and we interview Morgane Fortan about using neutron stars as multi-messenger laboratories. But first, before all that, Jake Slabberg Morgan and Bin Yu talk to Justin Bray in this month's Job Bite.
3: So I am joined today by Bin Yu at our end in the studio, and our Job Bite interviewee for today is Dr. Justin Bray here in the department. So how are you keeping, Justin? Uh,
4: fine, thanks, Jake.
3: So I should say at this point, for the benefit of the listeners, that you are not in the studio with us. You are actually speaking to us over what is kind of Skype, but isn't Skype, but never mind. You're speaking to us all the way from Australia. So what have you been up to out there?
4: Well, uh, I'm not just speaking to you from Australia. I'm speaking to you from just about uh, the most remote part of Australia I could get to. Uh, I'm at... Buladi Station, about 50 kilometers from the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory. Uh, so um, this is the, um, the the most remote observatory in Australia, uh, as far away from the humans and their radio interference as possible. Uh, intended as the site for the, um, for the uh, ASKAP and MWA uh, telescopes, and uh, the future site of the low-frequency Square kilometer the array. And uh, the reason that I am now 50 kilometers away from it is because they wanted uh, even the uh, electronic noise from the uh, ovens and uh, uh, washing machines and so on to be that far away from the instruments. So uh, I have quite a, quite a commute at the moment.
3: Okay, it sounds like it. So the instruments that are being put in place out there, they are even sensitive to things like ovens and microwaves and such? Uh,
4: yes, yes, exactly.
3: Uh, okay. So, as I understand it, you've been developing some new detector technologies to go in these telescopes out there. Can you maybe tell us a bit about that, what you've been up to?
4: Uh, Sure, sure. So, um, these uh, radio telescopes are are designed to look at um, radio signals coming from uh, deep space, from a galaxy, outside a galaxy, and and, uh, so on. Uh, What I'm interested in doing is using them to detect uh, radio waves coming from our own atmosphere, Uh, when a uh, a high-energy cosmic ray interacts in the atmosphere above the telescope and generates this uh, cascade of uh, high-energy particles. Um, By by, uh, observing this uh, cascade both through radio waves and with particle detectors at ground level, between the two, it's possible to get a good idea of what the original cosmic ray was. And this is something that's been done very successfully for the last few years, uh, in particular with the uh, Loupar Telescope in the Netherlands, and uh, I've been trying to develop the particle detector components of the system to go alongside the radio telescopes here to do the same thing in Murchison, Australia.
3: Ah, okay. So could we maybe take a step back for the benefit of the listeners and for people like me who've had a few years since they've had to do particle physics as an undergrad? So can you maybe explain a little about what are cosmic rays? What do we mean when we say that?
4: So cosmic rays are high-energy particles coming from space, bombarding the Earth uh, all the time. Uh, what they are physically is um, uh, atomic nuclei, stripped of all their electrons. They can range from uh, hydrogen nuclei, that is protons, all the way up to, to iron nuclei. And they have such high energies, they move just uh, a hair's breadth up slower from the speed of light. Uh, and are so energetic that when they hit the atmosphere, they, they uh, generate this cascade of high-energy particles coming down to the ground.
3: Ah, oh, Okay. So our conventional detectors, well, conventional bioastronomical standard CCD detectors, they would not be sensitive to these events. Is that correct? Uh,
4: When you say uh, a detector, you said a a CCD is in a charge-coupled device. Yes. Yes. Uh, So the um, uh, optical telescopes generally use uh, CCD arrays to detect um, uh, photons being focused by the mirror uh, of a reflector telescope onto the focal plane. CCDs do actually detect cosmic rays by accident. Uh, some cosmic rays uh, interacting the atmosphere produce uh, muons which uh, uh, move, uh, come down through the atmosphere and pass through the um, CCD array of a, an optical telescope and uh, leave uh, a spurious bright pixels. So um, from the point of view of an optical astronomer, uh, cosmic rays are a source of noise rather than signal.
3: Ah, okay. But from your perspective, these are precisely the signals that you are hoping to detect?
4: Yes, exactly. Uh, Now, a a CCD ray itself is a little bit small, so I needed to build a a bigger detector than that.
3: okay. So, how big was this detector that you ultimately had to build?
4: Okay, so um, I, sorry, I should add, add a caveat here that this is uh, not um, uh, just my own work. I, there's been a, I've received a great deal of assistance uh, in particular from uh, um, uh, Professor Ralph Spencer at Joggle Bank. Um, okay, so the, um, the detector itself uh, is a, uh, about a square metre in size. It looks like a big metal pizza box. Uh, and inside it, it contains a slab of uh, perspex doped with some interesting chemicals, uh, such that when a high-energy particle passes through that slab, it uh, scintillates. It produces a, um, a few tens of thousands of uh, visible or uh, near ultraviolet photons. Within the detector, then there are some uh, photodetectors, uh, not CCD arrays, uh, another type, uh, another type, uh, silicon photomultipliers, that uh, detect that optical pulse, uh, transformed back to an electrical pulse, uh, that sends me a signal saying that uh, yes, this detector has just detected something.
3: Ah, okay, so. Can this detector be pointed to a specific place on the sky, or is it just generally looking out
4: for cosmic rays that come its way? Uh, It's looking across uh, pretty much the whole sky at any given time. Uh, Like I said, it's a a, a square metre device that detects when a high-energy particle passes through it from pretty much any direction. Uh, From directions other than directly upward, obviously the the projected area of, of the detector is a bit smaller, so it's most sensitive directly upwards. But uh, other than that, yes, it's sensitive across the the whole sky to some extent. That's pretty impressive.
3: So, let's say that you have a cosmic ray that comes in from a direction other than directly upwards. How Mm -hmm. can you localise it? How can you tell where a particle, which has caused some particular event, has come from?
4: Ah, now for that, you need more than one detector. Um, Ah, okay. uh, If you have multiple detectors, then the, um, the original cosmic rays create this, this cascade that has a, uh, a, sh- well, a shower front that all the high energy particles are in this uh, a plane perpendicular to its direction of motion, and as this um, uh, shower front passes over the Earth, the closest detectors will, got, will, be, will detect the signal before the further ones do, and by the delay between them you can tell what direction the original cosmic ray was coming from. Uh, at the moment I'm at the stage where I, I've built, uh, we've built one detector, um and I I'm that's the stage at which I want to actually put it in the field and see whether it, what whether it breaks or not. Uh but um the the next steps involve building the more detectors and getting them working together with the radio an- antennas of uh, the telescopes on site. At which point we will be able to start localizing the, the, the cosmic rays.
3: Ah, I see. So whereabouts will these extra detectors be deployed? Will they also be deployed across Murchison, or do you anticipate them going to other sites?
4: Um, we are planning to build out to an array of somewhere between four and eight detectors spread over the core of one particular telescope here, the Murchison Wide Field Array. Uh, the first one we've uh, put in on site just, just uh, earlier today uh, is about 20 metres south of the... Um, what what they call the Southern Hex, one of the the core structures of the Murchison-Widefield Array.
3: Ah, okay. So, when we detect these cosmic showers, what can we tell from them? What can we learn about the
4: universe by studying these things? So, the the big, the fundamental question about cosmic rays is uh, where they're coming from. And that's more difficult than you might think, because... Even if you can figure out the direction from which they arrive at Earth, that's not necessarily where they came from, because they're they're charged particles, and the space is full of magnetic fields, and charged particles and magnetic fields follow curved wiggly paths. So it could be coming from over here, We see it coming from over there. Uh, So instead we try to um, deduce properties of whatever's producing them from the spectrum and the composition of the cosmic rays—that is, uh, how many of them there are at different energies, and what types of particles make them up—I mentioned earlier uh, that the LOFAR telescope of the Netherlands has been very successfully studying cosmic rays, and has uh, um, improved our understanding of uh, what types of nuclei are most com- most common among cosmic rays. And uh, so, uh, what we're aiming here to, uh, to do here is to to um, uh, improve those measurements further still to be able to uh, determine what what nuclei are most common among cosmic rays at different energies.
3: Ah, okay. So do we? It sounds like we have some kind of picture from LOFAR about what kinds of nuclei are most prevalent. So what does that look like at the moment? Do we typically see lots of small nuclei or lots of large ones, or is it some kind of distribution?
4: So they're dominated by uh, light nuclei in general, um, uh, probably pr- uh, protons at lower energies. We have uh, indications from uh, another another uh, instrument, the Eroger Observatory, uh, that there is a shift towards a, a heavier composition at the very top end of the energy scale, uh, and they're, they're investigating because this is a mix of, um, say, protons and iron, or as their measurement suggests currently, a... a um, a mixture of intermediate nuclei around the oxygen sort of mass. Um, what uh, LOFAR uh, announced a, a year or so ago was uh, that in the intermediate energy range the uh, nuclei had a, a larger fraction of um, protons or helium uh, than would have been expected uh, for, for consistency with the OJ, with the results from Pierre OJ. Uh, But whether they're protons or helium makes a big difference in terms of how far they can travel before they interact with, with the background photon fields, whether they can reach us uh, over long distances. Um, so uh, I think that's, that's the, the corner where I'd be most interested in, in the, uh, trying to investigate her.
3: Ah, oh, okay, so in this intermediate bracket.
4: Yes, yes. The, the, uh, the lower energy cosmic rays are generally thought to be from within that galaxy, the highest energy ones probably from outside our galaxy, and this intermediate energy range. And when I say intermediate, they are still rid- ridiculously high energy by, by everyday standards. Uh, that's the, the energy range in which the transition between the two probably happens.
3: So when we talk about the energy range that we see here, and it being high by everyday standards, what kind of energies do these particles typically have?
4: Uh, in the what i'm calling the intermediate range uh, i'd say is around uh, 10 to the 17 to 10 to the 18 electron volts so um so in scientific, in scientific notation this is 1 followed by uh, 17 or 18 zeros electron volts which is probably not a unit you, you uh, most listeners will have used so uh okay so for comparison the large hadron collider the particle accelerator at cern and uh, accelerates uh, protons up to energies of around 10 to the 13 electron volts. So these are uh, particles uh, 10,000 to 100,000 times as energetic as uh, produced in the Large Hadron Collider.
3: Wow. So we're several orders of magnitude above that, then?
4: Yes. Something out there in the universe is a uh, particle accelerator, uh, far more energetic than within the, anything we can produce, and it would, be, it would be nice to know what that is.
3: Mm. So we then have to go out and look up at the sky, to have access to that laboratory, as it were, because we can't replicate it here at home. Exactly. Uh Ah, okay. So... Not without without a particle accelerator the size of the Earth. Hmm. That that would cost quite a bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're using the Earth. I can imagine there would be opposition to that. So I guess the big question that I haven't touched on at this point is what kind of object out there... Could accelerate these particles to such high energies. What could produce these?
4: So we have um, some fairly well thought out models as to how uh, lower energy particles can be gradually accelerated to higher energies through uh, interactions with regions of magnetic turbulence, where if you have um, a shock fronts between uh, different uh, magnetised regions in space, you can get uh, particles being accelerated by them. And the um, foremost uh, class of source, I would say, is uh, the remnants left over by supernovae. So when the supernova goes off, um, you've got this expanding shock front with the, the interstellar medium, and that's a, 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 a wonderful environment to accelerate cosmic rays. And there is evidence from the gamma-ray observations of these uh, directly that, that uh, they are accelerating hadrons, that is, cosmic ray nuclei up to high energies. However, there are some. There's a fairly good theoretical limit as to how high an energy you can reach with a supernova remnant. Uh, as the cosmic ray becomes more energetic, it starts to zoom around in ever, ever larger circles, and eventually the circles large enough that it uh, escapes the supernova remnant. So the higher energy ones probably do not come from them. Uh, some uh, possible sources. There's, uh, there are suggestions regarding the galactic centre. Uh, regarding um, uh, outside a galaxy, uh, active galactic nuclei, as generally a, a, uh, uh, a favoured source among the, uh, many theorists, or the, the the loads of radio galaxies. Uh, whatever it is, it has to be something uh, large or, has, or with a strong magnetic field, or if at all possible, both.
3: Ah, okay. So what I'm wondering about with these supernovae shell because obviously a supernova can only go off once and that's it it's a one and done affair and so so they can still end up accelerating cosmic rays for quite some time after they've gone off and this shell expands
4: yes for tens of thousands of years afterwards ah okay uh, so uh, if you look at the sky and radio um, uh, supernovae are a relatively rare thing um, because they are, as you say, one and done. Uh, you, you only have a very short chance to glimpse them. But supernova remnants, the expanding shock fronts left over from supernovae, that since they last so long, uh, many of these are seen in the radio.
3: Hmm. Okay. So one of the points that i got down here is that these ah. detectors need to be kept very cold in a hot environment in the Australian outback. So why do we need to do that?
4: So they don't necessarily need to be kept cold, but they do perform better that way. Uh, the, uh, I mentioned earlier that the, the type of um, uh, sensor we use to detect the, the um, light pulse from the scintillator is a silicon post multiplier. Uh, the reason we use that rather than the CCD array, which you mentioned earlier, is that uh, it has a very fast response. Uh, a single photon hitting it Will immediately cause a little breakdown in a tiny little uh, avalanche photodiode and cause a, 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 a an electrical pulse. However, the more you heat up the um, uh, the silicon photomultiplier, the more you can get that sort of breakdown avalanche thing happening spontaneously. Uh, and so the, the the rate of background false detections from a single chip uh, increases as the temperature drops. Now, we get around this to some extent by using uh, several of these chips, uh, and so we only count something as a protection if it sets off several of them at once. Uh, I did consider various means of temperature stabilization, but they, they all turned out to be impractical for engineering reasons.
3: Ah, uh, okay. So is this an an issue of dark current, essentially, what we're seeing here?
4: Yes, dark current is it is exactly. Mm.
3: Uh, okay, so it's down to the inherent nature of what these devices are made out of. Uh Yes. Uh, okay, okay. So, for our listeners, if you ever see dark current referred to in the literature for CCDs or anything else, because there are CCDs that you can buy for astrophotography. They're pricey, but it can be done. So that's what they're referring to there. It's a problem that doesn't go away. Right, uh, Ben. Do you have any questions
5: to chip in with?
2: Yeah, I have uh, a question, but not not so scientific question. Just uh, uh, what kind of environment you are living? So you you mentioned that you uh, the detector is built in a hot hot desert. So do you need to uh, work or live nearby the device, or from a more distant uh, place to control it?
4: So You're asking uh, if the detector is in a remote location, how I control it from a long distance away? Yes. Yes, so fortunately there is quite a bit of infrastructure at the observatory uh, built to service the radio telescopes on site. So in this case I've uh, placed the detector uh, about 100 metres from the the nearest support building. Uh, Incidentally, um, the listeners won't be able to see the video, but I am rather sunburdened at present because uh, I and three other people spent uh, all this afternoon in 40-plus in, uh, degree heat um, threading the, uh, t- t- treading, treading the cables through some protective piping uh, to, to get them to the support building. Um, uh, that building itself is, of course, a, a screened room. Um, that That is, the, all the electronics inside it is enclosed in a conductive shield to prevent uh, interference from leaking into the telescope. Uh, and itself... Uh, uh, It acts mainly as a relay for the connection to go along another six kilometres of fibre to another uh, support building, which contains one screened room inside another screened room, both of them with airlocks, to make sure that uh, when somebody opens the door, you don't get interference leaking out. Somebody opens the outer door, steps inside, closes the door, opens the inner door, and steps inside the, the, the room itself.
3: Yeah, that's impressive. I'm imagining it's got those hand scanners that you see in sci-fi movies. Uh, no no hand scanners, I'm afraid. Oh, yeah. I suppose the budget wouldn't stretch to those reasonably. So, yeah, but it is a good point, though, about how a lot of observing has to be done remotely because the telescopes are in inaccessible areas or areas that just aren't really comfortable for humans to be in. I mean, ALMA is a prime example of that. It's, what, 5,000 metres up?
4: Something like that, yes. yeah. In the case of ALMA, uh, the, the main motivation was to be above most of the atmosphere. Yes. Uh, in the case of low-frequency radio, you don't care as much about the atmosphere. Well, you do care about the ionosphere, but to be above that, you need a mountain 500 kilometres tall. Uh, so, so your secondary motivation, then, is just to be away from humans and their radio interference, and then you have to be careful not to bring any interference with you.
3: Hmm. So you have to select as remote a site as you can and then keeps humans away from that site as far as possible. Yes, exactly. Okay. So, looking ahead to the future, perhaps, do you anticipate detector arrays like this being rolled out for other radio sites around the world? Will the SKA component in South Africa maybe have something like this?
4: Uh, so, this sort of um, application of radio telescopes works best with uh, one particular type, um, Aperture array radio telescopes, which consist of, rather than your, your classic um, uh, parabolic fish-shaped antennas, they consist of um, uh, spiky wire antennas on the ground that get combined electronically. Now, the, the reason for this is that uh, in the telescopes like that, every individual antenna sees the whole sky, like the particle detectors do. Uh, So um, there are several Aperture Array radio telescopes which are being used for this purpose. I mentioned LOFAR, the uh, LWA in the US, uh, there's some initial work being done uh, on on using it that way, and uh, the uh, Murchison Widefield Array in Australia is is the one that we're we're starting to use here. Um, In the future, the low-frequency component of the Square Kilometre Array at this site, the same site as the Murchison Widefield Array, uh, will be the world's largest array of radio antennas and what we're doing here is setting us up to properly exploit that. Ah, okay.
3: Fantastic. Well, I don't know about you Justin, but that feels like a natural place to call it. Unless there are any more questions from our end? I have uh, another question, maybe it's stupid, because
2: I know nothing about uh, particle uh, physics. So I I know that there is another particle like, capture or detector in Japan uh, it's built for capture the neutrino, and it's uh, uh, it's behind the, the so it built underground about maybe 100 meters underground. So, what's the difference between these two particle detector?
4: So that's a very good question. So I think you're probably talking about the detector Super Kamiokande.
2: Yes, yes. Uh,
4: yes. So for for detecting different types of particles, you want different types of detectors. For, uh, cosmic rays generate cascades that mostly reach us down to ground level or sometimes penetrate a few metres into the rock. Uh, and so for detecting the, those cosmic rays indirectly, you want to detect those particles at ground level. However, if you're looking for neutrinos, those particles are an annoying background. So if you want to, And neutrinos will go straight through the Earth, so they could interact anywhere. So if you want to detect just neutrinos without detecting all the muons and electrons and positrons produced by cosmic rays... You want to place your detector underground, uh, which is the approach that uh, Super Kamiokande has taken. Uh, in terms of the actual mechanism by which the detector works, I believe Super Kamiokande uses photomultiplier tubes, another type of high time resolution um, optical sensor.
3: So, are sources of cosmic rays typically also sources of lots
4: of neutrinos? Quite likely, if cosmic rays are being accelerated by some source, then if they interact while accelerating, which you would typically expect to happen occasionally, those interactions can produce neutrinos. So the, the sort of neutrinos detected by super kamiokande will generally be lower energy ones, I believe, um, that you would not expect to be associated with the very high energy uh, cosmic ray sources. But the uh, ice cube... Uh, array at the South Pole detects neutrinos at extremely high energies and is providing us with some, some uh, interesting indications of, of potential cosmic ray sources. And the, the benefit here is that the neutrinos, since they're uncharged particles, they travel in straight lines, they point directly back to their sources. Ah, okay.
3: So is there the potential maybe to work with the data you're getting out of IceCube to localize the sources that you're seeing with your detectors?
4: Uh, the trouble is, because uh, the cosmic rays follow wiggly paths, it, it's very hard to associate them with specific sources. So they, some of them might come from the same sources from which ice cube detect neutrinos. It would be very hard to tell which. Uh, the other way to try to associate them is by the time at which they arrive, But again, those wiggly paths work against you. Because if, if they uh, uh, follow a wiggly path, they might take tens of thousands of years longer than the neutrinos to reach us
3: even though they may have originally left at around the same time. Exactly. Ah, ah interesting. yeah, that, that is a rascal. Is, is there any way around that that we have at the moment?
4: One possible way to look for coincidences is to look for gamma rays arriving from a source at the source in the same location as neutrinos. Uh, so the same sort of interactions, like accelerating cosmic rays, that produce neutrinos can also produce gamma rays and the gamma rays also travel directly to us and they interact in the atmosphere like cosmic rays and can be detected like cosmic rays. The trouble is, because they are detected like cosmic rays, they're very hard to tell apart from cosmic rays.
3: Ah, so then you run into that new problem.
4: Yes. So, if we were extremely lucky, we might be able to uh, identify, that, uh, detect some cosmic rays and say that they were actually uh, definitely gamma rays. Uh, but that would uh, that we would be, have to be quite lucky for that, I believe.
3: Hmm. So it's a real multi-messenger puzzle that we're facing here, then. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Okay, for thank you watching. much, Jake. Ben, go put some after sun on. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. See you then.
1: Thanks for that, and Jake and Ben. Now, James Stringer interviews Morgan Fortin about using neutron stars as multi-messenger
6: observatories. I'm interviewing Dr. Morgane Fontant from the Nicholas Copernicus Astronomical Center in Poland. Uh, I'm James Stringer. Hi, Morgane. Hi. Tell us a bit about yourself.
5: So I'm a nuclear astrophysicist. I work at Copernicus Center in Warsaw in Poland. And I I mean, I study neutron stars. I try to understand what neutron stars are uh, made of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I develop some models for the interior of neutron stars and then calculate properties of neutron stars, which we could potentially observe with various instruments, like telescopes, I mean in the electromagnetic spectrum, and also gravitational wave detectors.
6: So, give us a quick history about neutron stars, so what makes them so interesting for us to study?
5: So, basically neutron stars are um, very interesting because they are, I mean, small objects, like they have a radius of 10 kilometers, and yet they have a large mass, one to two times the mass of the Sun, so they are extremely dense objects, and we believe that I mean, a neutron star is composed of two parts. The crust of a neutron star is composed of atomic nuclei, which we can, to a certain extent, study in laboratory and and produce in laboratory, but with experiments on Earth, we cannot reproduce an access matter which is in the core of neutron stars, so at the very center of the star. So basically, we don't know what neutron stars are uh, made of. And this is why they are extremely exciting, and also they, they are extreme objects, so in terms of density, in terms of gravity, they have a, an extremely large gravitational field. Some neutron stars also have very large magnetic fields, mm-hmm. so all of these very extreme properties make them great subjects of, of study, and that's why I really like working on them.
6: Did hmm. so you work on neutron stars, or neutron stars and pulsars stars as well?
5: So, no, I really work on, on neutron stars. So the distinction between neutron stars and pulsars being that a pulsar is a neutron star, which can be observed in radio or in gamma rays. So every mm-hmm. pulsar is a neutron star, but not mm-hmm. every neutron star can be observed yeah. as a pulsar.
6: pulsars spin very fast, don't they? Exactly.
5: Yeah.
6: You mentioned that you use these neutron stars in astrophysical laboratories. What exactly does that mean?
5: So as I mentioned, so we can only probe a bit of the upper part of neutron stars in, in laboratories, so we don't know what's inside neutron stars. And developing modeling for the interior of neutron stars is really tricky because this is a system composed of many particles in nuclear interaction, and there is no solution that is known for such a system, I mean, this is a system which is really complicated to study. So right now we do not know what neutron stars are made of and what's the properties of uh, the nuclear matter inside neutron stars, and so by uh, measuring properties of neutron stars, the hope is to try to better understand what's inside neutron stars and so to put some constraints on the properties of the nuclear interaction.
6: So what kind of matter are we talking about? So we know that like the outer, like, outer crust is atomic matter. How does the core compare to that? So is it like the nucleus of an atom or is it something completely different?
5: No, so the crust is, uh, I mean, outer crust and inner crust is composed of atomic nuclei. The difference between the inner crust and the outer crust is that in the inner crust, in addition to regular atomic nuclei, you also have neutrons that escape from the, the nuclei, and so they compose a, a sort of liquid, a uh, superfluid, actually. Mm-hmm. And at the transition between the core and the crust, at a transition which is, roughly speaking, the average density inside an atomic nuclei, the um, the nuclei will disappear. And so the central part of the neutron star, the core, will be composed of an homogeneous mixture of neutrons, protons, electrons, muons and maybe uh, some additional particles
6: hmm.
5: like hyperons.
6: So how exactly do you uh, model the neutron star core and crust? How how do you describe it using like say maps, or using models or how?
5: So as I mentioned, like modeling the interior of neutron stars is complicated because it's a many-body system uh, what do you mean by that? Basically, I mean, what you do consider is a large number of particles, typically electrons, protons, muons, uh, and neutrons, and this is a, in, in nuclear interaction, and there is no solution for this. I mean, this is a problem which is still a topic of a lot of research, and there is no uh, solution known, so there are different approaches to describe such a, such a system, and one of the approaches that I use is a phenomenological approach, in mm-hmm. the sense that I use a given model for the nuclear interaction, mm-hmm. which is largely, uh, actually, unknown. Uh, I use a given model for the nuclear interaction, which I put into my model that describes either nuclei or either homogeneous mixture of particles, like you find so in but the So
6: sort of like an amorphous blob of particles.
5: Sort of, yes. Yeah. And so based on this given model for the nuclear interaction, I calculate the what we call the equation of state mm-hmm. of a neutron star, which roughly speaking describes the properties of matter inside neutron stars. And for this given equation of state, which depends on the model I take for the nuclear interaction, I also calculate properties of neutron stars, for example the mass and the radius of neutron stars. Mm-hmm. And those are quantities which are measured or which will hopefully be measured in the mm-hmm. near future. And so the game then is to try to measure mass and radius and confirm these two results of models that I typically obtain, and then you can Mm -hmm. exclude some some models of nuclear interaction.
6: So your models predict the mass and radius of a neutral star with a sort of given chemical makeup, or not chemical makeup, but nuclear makeup. Yeah. And then hopefully by measuring the mass and radius of these stars you can then
5: Exactly. So it's like, yeah, two ways. Like, you you take a model for the nuclear interaction, you calculate mass and radius of neutron stars, and then if you measure these properties, you can hope to put constraint uh, on on the nuclear interaction. So
6: then, the next question, how do you measure these mass and radii of the neutron stars?
5: So, masses of neutron stars... um, I I can't remember what's the exact number now, but we do measure masses of neutron stars. Uh, So this is typically done for, um, like... The most precise technique uses radio observations of neutron stars, so of blue stars, and so this is relatively standard for uh, a neutron star which is in a binary system. Now, measuring the radius of neutron star is much more tricky, and there are a couple of techniques, of models, that are used in, in the literature, but there are large uncertainties at the moment, so there is no non-controversial measure of the radius of neutron stars. However, uh, for a couple of months now, um, there is this instrument on board of the International Space Station, which is called NICER. It's an American mission, and the, one of the only purpose of NICER is to measure the radius of neutron stars. And so, this is very exciting because, for the moment, the only constraint we have on the properties of neutron stars comes from mass measurements.
6: Mm. So, how exactly does NICER measure the radius of the neutron star?
5: It uses various techniques, but one of the techniques it uses is to try to model the the pulse emission of neutron stars uh, in in X-rays, and once you observe this pulse emission, you use a given model, and from this model you can recover the radius of neutron Mm. stars.
6: So this emission does occur on a neutron star surface as it rotates? Exactly. So like near the poles?
5: Potentially, yes. I mean, this is, I believe, also not really well known, but Mm. yeah, the idea is that you have for example, the hotspot, so a region of your star, which is hotter than the rest of the star, and then as the neutron star rotates, you will see pulses. So uh, these pulses will co- correspond to the, the moment uh, where you will see this hotspot.
6: Mm. And the sort of location hotspot can give you some sort of idea of size of the star. Exactly,
5: yeah.
6: Interesting. And back to the mass, how does a neutron star being in a binary, or a pulsar being in a binary, allow you to measure its mass?
5: So um, this is possible because if your neutron star is in a binary, you can measure what we are called Keplerian parameters, which describe the properties of the binary. And if in addition, for example, with uh, radio observation, you can measure some quantities which describe relativistic phenomena, for example, what is called the Shapiro delay, etc. Um With this additional measurement, you can recover the, the mass of the neutron star.
6: So the effect of the uh, neutron star on like, the signal that the pulsar emits. Uh, depending on the mass, right? Yes. And as you measure it by measuring the effect it has on the pulse. Yes, it's a rather
5: complicated topic and mm, (laughs) rather technical, so it's quite hard to
6: sort of talk about measuring pulsar masses without getting too far into the relativistic side of things. Yes. By nature, that's how they are. So, um, what are our current sort of best guesses about neutron star compositions beyond the atomic crust? Or are there just too many competing models for us to talk about?
5: I guess it would depend on who you ask, but in (laughs) my opinion, I would say we'd rather... Yeah, we don't really know what's inside a neutron star. For example, something I've been working on recently is whether there could be hyperons in the core of neutron stars. So hyperons are baryons like the neutron and the proton, but in addition to up and down quarks, like you find in neutrons and protons, you have strange quarks. And they cannot exist, I mean, in, on Earth, they can be produced in laboratory, but they decay quickly. They could be present at the center of neutron stars at high density and so um, recently with colleagues from portugal and and italy what we did is to try to take into account all our current knowledge on the properties of hyperons from laboratory experiments and build model of neutron stars with hyperons and so what we find is Based on the constraints we have, so for now the only constraints are from the uh, mass measurements, we cannot say whether hyperons are present or not inside neutron stars. Hmm.
6: So So could these be tested on uh, Earth, like the LHC for example? Is that where they would be detected?
5: Yes, I know. I mean the LHC probes uh, hot uh, dense matter and neutron stars it's really, I mean relatively (laughs) cold dense matter. So the LHC is not uh, so much suitable for that, but you have specific experiments, for example in Japan, et cetera, which aim at measuring the properties of hyperons.
6: So these are cold, dense matter, rather? Yes, about, exactly. Yeah, matter. exactly. Bearing when neutron stars are still, what, 10 to the 6 Kelvin?
5: Even so a bit more, like up to 10 million, to the 10 million Kelvin. Yes, exactly. that's
6: considered cold.
5: Yes, <laughs> relatively,
6: so yeah. So how does this link to nuclear physics in a more general sense? How could these measurements of neutron star compositions affect our knowledge of nuclear physics in a more, like, down-to-earth general sense?
5: So we basically don't know much about the nuclear interaction. So any knowledge we can get from any observable is very welcome. And so neutron stars will give some information on on the on the nuclear interaction, and so to better understand it. And
6: By nuclear action, do you mean like what kind of force are you talking about with nuclear interaction? So the
5: strong force. Strong force. Yes.
6: Yeah. want to give a bit of introduction about the strong force? Because I'm not sure of what the strong force is.
5: So the strong force is what keeps together like an atomic nuclei basically.
6: So. If it's not nuclear, uh, like we know, then what kind of exotic matter options are there for the composition of these neutron stars?
5: Some models predict that in the core of neutron stars, you just have sort of regular matter in terms of neutrons, protons, electrons, and muons. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, right now, you cannot exclude that you have also hyperons. Mm-hmm. So particles like the neutron and the proton with, in addition, some strange quark. But you have other models predicting some what we call exotic particles, uh, for example, kaons or pions, or uh, there are also models predicting that at the centre of uh, neutron stars you have strange quark matter, so deconfined quark matter. And that's so. not
6: found on Earth at any. No. way at all. That's really cool. One of the sort of big words going around, sort of practical astronomy right now, is multi-messenger. Yeah. And I read that you're using multi-messenger approaches to observe these sources in the sky. What does it actually mean by multi-messenger?
5: So. Um, Right now, I've only mentioned measurement of the mass and radius of neutron stars, but, I mean, a couple of months ago in August, um, the ligo virgo collaboration managed to observe gravitational wave, uh, waves emitted by a binary uh, neutron star system, and this is interesting because it allows to measure additional quantities. So not only the mass and the radius, but also what what is called the tidal deformability. So basically, this is a measure of how the shape of the neutron star will be deformed due to the gravitational potential of the other star. And so by this new, um, this additional quantity will give us some additional information on the properties of neutron star, and so on the properties of uh, the nuclear interaction.
6: So by the way, this uh, neutron star rotates, it creates different patterns of gravitational waves, right? Yeah. So this is combined with uh, measurements across the EM spectrum, I imagine, as well?
5: Yeah. So in practice, I do not work on observations. I mean, I don't do observations of neutron stars in any, I mean, in radio, gamma ray, etc. What I use are measurements that are obtained with observations, either in the electromagnetic spectrum or now in terms of gravitational waves emission. So
6: what do you see um, the future of the field looking like? Well, it be expected over the next six months or so, or even a year?
5: So. Well, frankly, this is very exciting right now. I think it has never been so exciting, at least as far as I can mm-hmm. tell. So um, we hope to have, uh, soon, rather soon, I, I guess it's a matter of a couple of months, some, some measurement of the radius of neutron star from NICER, mm-hmm. this American mission on board of the International Space Station. And also, um, the next run of observation from uh, the ligo virgo observatories will provide some additional measurements of, for example, the tidal deformability. And so Mm -hmm. we do expect a large number of measurements for different types of systems. And so, yeah, this is very, very Mm -hmm. exciting, because potentially we could constrain really what's inside, I mean, understand what's inside neutron stars.
6: And so what kind of um, impact would constraining this have on other fields of pulsar or neutron star astronomy? How would knowing what neutron stars are made of uh, affect our knowledge of, you know, how neutron stars are born, how they evolve over their lifetime, uh, how they emit radiation, that kind of thing?
5: I tend not to distinguish between these different fields. I usually like, think in terms of uh, sort of synergy of all those different fields aiming mm. at understanding the interior of neutron stars. Now, for example, if we infer that you have hyperons inside neutron stars, this mm. could be interesting because, potentially, there could be some very cool neutron stars, cool in terms of low temperature.
6: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess they're cool in both Yeah, dimensions. exactly. <laughs> I guess one of the bigger questions here, we sort of finish this off is, you're obviously a woman in physics. What kind of advice have you got about aspiring women in physics? And what kind of advice you give to someone who wants to become a astrophysicist, a physicist, a scientist, any sort of STEM field?
5: Well, I would say just like follow your uh, follow your passion, fo- follow your heart, and just like you will always meet people who think you don't belong here, but just try to really work with people you appreciate and who support you, and and it's not easy. I mean, yeah, sometimes you have to sort of fight with people mm. who don't accept or make you feel not welcome here but yeah keep I mean follow your, really your heart and, and your passion
6: mm, great <laughs> advice so thank you very much for joining us um,
5: thank you for Morgan. having
6: me I hope you had a, an interesting time in Manchester
5: thank you and, for um, thank you very much
7: bye thanks for that James now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we can't fit anywhere else the odds and ends
0: so um, Hongming, uh as the newest among us Yes. Uh, I think it's only fair that you are thrown in the deep end and right. uh, open the odds and ends for us. So what have you brought for us? Okay, so uh,
1: as you might or might not know, actually, I'm from China. And uh, recently, China's 4 satellite was launched um, on 14th of December, which is th- uh, a few days ago. And Chang'e satellite is a lunar exploration satellite. Actually, um, it aims to land on the back of the moon, which has not been done before. Um, it basically will explore the Van Karmen Crater, the crater located at the south Pole, of which is one of the largest impact craters known in the whole solar system. And they were saying that the impact force created the crater actually might travel past from the Moon's Earth crust to its mantle layer, which is amazing. So the Chang'e 4 will actually try to examine the idea to see if it's true or not. Otherwise, uh, another thing that Chang will do is actually um, to have a lot of lots of pictures of the back of the moon and also use its infrared spectrometer to detect um, the moon's surface as well. For the moon rover case, actually beforehand we have a U-2 uh, moon rover and now uh, I'm not sure what name yet, but we will have a moon rover. Um, it will actually travel through the moon back surface and actually do some detections. One important point that um, the uh, satellite will bring to uh, the moon as well is actually it has a mini-laboratory with some seas. And the seas is used to do photosynthesis studies and respirations action studies. So this has not been done before yet as well.
0: So they're amazing. they're actually
1: trying to grow... Plants
0: on not on the moon, but like in a little mm-hmm. in a little
1: lab, and actually uh, the temperature will be strictly con- uh, controlled. But um, the light will be from the moon or uh, from a really uh, narrow pipe.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine on, lunar temperatures aren't very friendly towards plants. It the is, yeah. so
1: the temperature will be controlled strictly.
0: Okay, so the so the light is from the moon, or oh, oh it's it's from, it's, from, it's from outside, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, from, from outside, yeah. Sorry, uh, they, so they've got a what, like a bulb,
1: basically. I think so. It's like a three kilograms, really small bulb with some seeds within it, and maybe some controlling devices as well. Okay.
0: Um, so this it should be really interesting experiment when it landed. So this is the I think they we people have done studies on growth in space before, right? There was something on the ISS.
7: Yes, right? there was. Um, they've actually grown quite a few things, I've, from what I can see. Um, there's a good amount of different kinds of lettuce, so red romaine lettuce, mizuna lettuce, different sorts of, like, cabbages, uh, uh, things like cress, onions, radishes, peas, a whole, a whole garden, they've, basically. They've,
0: they've got a full greenhouse. Yep. So sure. what... So compared to that, what sort of things are Chang'e? Chang'e. Is it Chang'e? Chang'e? Chang uh,
1: in, in the Chinese manner, but Chang'e is okay as well. So uh, Chang'e 4 actually has a relatively much smaller uh, bulb, uh, but actually potato was considered.
7: No, they're Aren't going they? through the Martian. Yeah, they are.
1: They're <laughs> going through the Martian. Um. And yes, um, silk, warm eggs, and actually potatoes will be brought to the moon and do some early experiments and see how they do uh, photosynthesis and also some other
0: um, lively action. Okay, that's really cool, actually. So it would be I,
7: interesting to see how they develop in space yeah. they get up to any strange weaving habits. Yeah, well,
0: there was, again, it's ISS-related. There was, because uh, it's, well, because it's the difference between what spinning a web in zero G and spinning it in low hmm. G. Yes. Like, Spiders went a bit mad, didn't they? Like not quite, but like they they were.
7: Mm, mm, I suppose it, their it whole a bit. their whole feedback is just yes. completely thrown. So I can imagine it would do some pretty interesting things. I mean, maybe it will do something similar to the silk Yeah, we'll
0: see. Um, I've watched the this is a complete tangent now. Um, I was watching the Doctor Who the new series of Doctor Who with mm. the um, the giant spiders episode last night. Um, so hopefully we won't unleash something like that. On the moon. Fingers crossed. That is <laughs> an absolutely terrible segue into whatever it is. Thank you, Hong uh, <laughs> Into So, Fiona um, has brought uh, something a little bit further away uh, this time, and heading further away still.
7: I have indeed. I'm going to talk a little about Voyager 2. And before I start, I'd like to pass on my thanks to Emma Alexander, uh, who's done a lot of the groundwork for this. But she couldn't be at this recording, so yes. I'm borrowing her words. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Emma. So, Voyager 2, as you may have heard in the news lately, has recently left the heliopause. So uh, so that is the news, and I'll give you a little bit of background on Voyager 2 before all of that. So it's it's been out there in space for a long, long time at this point. It was launched in August 1977, so 41 years. It is quite a long-lived spacecraft. Um, and it's, it's done quite a few flybys. It's flown past uh, Jupiter, that was in 1979, Saturn, a couple of years later, 1891, then on to Uranus in 18... 18? It time-traveled. <laughs> on to Uranus in 1986 and Neptune in 1989. And it's the only spacecraft to have gone to those last two, to the ice giants. Uh, we've had some others which have visited the gas giants, but it's the only one to go to the ice giants um and actually it was launched before Voyager one
0: okay only
7: narrowly so it was launched uh sixteen days before, so they were they're all intended to go in quite close succession uh but Voyager One has gone further uh because well, it was just going a lot faster.
0: Did, did Voyager 1 not take part in a lot of flybys then? Was it just a straight, like, let's fire you out? I
7: think, it fl- I think it did a flyby of Jupiter and Saturn to build up, you know, some yeah. speed in the slingshot, but it didn't detour to any of the others, which I think is part of why it's managed to go a bit faster, because uh, Voyager 1 has made it, made it to the distance that Voyager 2 has just reached about six years ago. It reached the heliopause in about 2012.
0: Yeah, I I remember that happening actually. So what? So just so we're completely clear for the listeners and me, of course. um, (laughs) What what exactly is the heliopause?
7: Right, the heliopause is essentially the bubble that's caused by the solar wind, which is the stream of charged particles from the sun, interacting with the interstellar medium, which is the stuff between. Uh, between stars in empty space. Um so normally what we see here on Earth from the solar wind is things like when it hits the atmosphere, it's what causes the aurora, that causes the no- northern and southern lights. Uh, but it actually goes a lot further than us. It travels out far, far beyond where the planets go. Uh, and the very edge of it is, uh, the heliopause. So the, the space where the solar wind is is called the heliosphere, and when you reach the edge, heliopause, And that is where Voyager has just gotten to uh, as of the 5th of November.
0: Okay, so about a month ago as of this recording.
7: About a month ago, yeah. yes. And it is now about 11 billion miles away from Earth.
0: That is... there's probably not a surface is nearby, is there?
7: Uh no, okay. no. I think they're just gonna have to hold it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um so I was I, I so I I'm always intrigued by this um idea of like having uh the edge of the solar system being the heliopause. Because the Oort cloud is outside of it.
7: There is some. I think there is quite a bit of debate even amongst astronomers as to what's technically outside the solar system. So which is why we are not conclusively saying outside the solar system because of course you do have the Oort cloud, Um, all of the sort of the ice and dust out that end. But it's pretty much reached beyond the, the sun's particles, even if it hasn't fully escaped its gravity yet you can still, I think, have some... There's still some gravitational effects from the sun. It's not quite that far away yet, but it is still pretty impressive for something that's the size of a small car.
0: Oh, yeah, no, I'm I'm not trying to take away from its uh, <laughs> achievements. It's gone further than I will. Um, <laughs> in many senses. Oh, that's <laughs> uh, uh, So... What so it's it's left it's left the heliopause. Yes. Um, do we know how long it'll take to reach, say, the Oort cloud, or because it's because the, vo- the Voyager spacecraft are just going to keep going, right? There's there's no. Yes,
7: they're just going to keep going. There is they've not been pointed at anything in specific. They're just travelling in whatever direction and going to see what they can see for as long as they can send back data.
0: Do we know how long that's going to be?
7: Um, I believe the amount of power they have is will give them the ability to send back messages until sometime in the 2020s, which is still some, quite something considering at launch they had 470 watts of power. That's not megawatts, that's not kilowatts, that's watts.
0: I This, the, this for me is the most incredible thing about most space tech is how low energy it is. Like, you, you can run most most satellites off pretty much like a toaster.
7: Oh, absolutely. Like,
0: it's, it's insane. Um,
7: I mean... Why don't we do that more here? on <laughs> <And> the ground? <laughs> <if we're laughs> to... Well, they do have the benefit that they don't need to worry about inconvenient things like, like friction and air resistance so much. It's a lot easier to power something when you can essentially give it a push and keep it going indefinitely. <laughs>
0: And this is why physicists always work in frictionless vacuums.
7: It just makes life so much easier. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do actually, I've got another stat for you. Okay. This is in terms of Voyager's memory. So, think of your average smartphone. Voyager has 200,000 times less memory than a smartphone.
0: Uh, so, like, we're talking kilobytes
7: we are not talking much at all, which I think has been is very typical of spacecraft around that era. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's more computational power in the average calculator these days than was used in most of the Apollo missions.
0: Yeah, that's mm. um, I know, just...
7: I, Technology is incredible. Yeah, it keeps going. Um, <laughs> Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 are both just going to head out there and have a look around essentially until they hit the point where they can't talk to us anymore and even once they do we've left something on them we've left the golden records which gives just a bit of information about about humanity about the planet in sort of a pictographic form which you can have a look up if you want to see what it looks like
0: i the, the golden records are really i i i think they're really clever because they they have a like the the way that the pictograms work is they use Um, there's a little diagram that defines the wavelength of the first transition of hydrogen.
7: Mm, The spin-flip transition. Yeah, the
0: spin-flip transition, which they use to define all lengths. And there's a diagram on there of how to make a record player um, (laughs) so that you can actually play the disc, uh, which I think is awesome. But also, how on earth are you going to actually decipher that? It's,
7: oh, I know. Yeah. I mean, there's some things on there. There's a map of where the Earth is based on pulsars. Which, I, if I, if you look at it, it just looks like someone's decided to draw a slightly psychedelic star. Yeah. So I, I hope the aliens have better intuition than I do. If any aliens ever find it.
0: Yeah, I, it's, I, I feel a lot of the things with direct attempt, like, so meti attempts so messaging extraterrestrial intelligence a lot of them are kind of tenuous at best i think there's like the um what is the arecibo message yes yes is um which i think actually had its 50th anniversary quite recently yes
7: yeah there was an anniversary quite recently yeah
0: that that message i have looked at like with like a key of what's going on in it and i don't I don't get it, <laughs> I kind of do if I spend a while but i yeah though I imagine to be fair, if you were a an alien species who have just received this message, you would put all your best and brightest minds on it, and I fully acknowledge I'm neither of those <laughs> so <laughs> uh,
7: <laughs> i I think that is pretty much me
0: right well, thank you very much Fiona. um I am in tradition of my inability to talk about anything else. Uh, I'm going to talk about an exoplanet. Um, so, what I before I actually introduce this planet, I, I'm, I'm kind of going to give you a little bit of theory and why the, why this why this discovery is actually really interesting. So, you have obviously in a, with an exoplanet, you have star and planet, uh, and the planet goes around the star. Uh, and then, the side of the planet varies, um, you can get planets Jupiter-sized, and you can get them all the way down to Earth-sized. Uh, but the one that we're kind of interested in is uh, sort of Neptune-sized, so ice giant. So it's bigger than Earth, um, but still fairly a lot smaller than Jupiter. Um, and what we've seen so far is that you can get Earth-sized planets pretty much any distance from the star within, like, it's not... It's no longer around the star. Um, mm-hmm. But you can get them really close uh, and you can get them really far away. And you can get the same with Jupiters. So we have these things called hot Jupiters, which are... Basically, Jupiter-sized planets that are within, so close to their star that they have uh, sort of five-day, five-five Earth-day years, um, and they're so hot that the uh, the the gas the gases within their atmospheres uh, are instead of a water cycle, uh, they have iron that melts, evaporates, condenses, and then rains back down again. So they they have iron rain, or the same happens with like silicon. They get rain, molten, rains of molten glass. That's how hot we're talking. Um, and you can have really similar things with Earth-sized planets. But what we haven't seen um, is pretty much any hot, hot Neptunes. So that we, despite the sort of relatively large numbers that we have now of planets that have been found, uh, we have found probably about a handful of what you could call hot Neptunes. So we have this um, thing called the hot Neptune desert, and no one knows why that's the case. But up until this point, um, we haven't actually been able to explain it uh, beyond maybe just by pure chance we haven't seen anything. But we've got to the point now where we're sure that it's not that. So until earlier this week, um, so three days ago, as of this recording, um, we have no answer to this. But now. We have a planet uh, known lovingly as GJ3470B. Uh, catchy. Uh, catchy. Okay. We're very good at this now. We have too many planets, so we number them instead, uh, instead of names. Uh, but So GJ3470B uh, orbits a red dwarf star. Uh, it's about 97 light years from Earth. Um, and the important thing here is it's, ne- it's neptune size. Uh, but is very close to its star. So it's um, it's actually right on the boundary of what we call this hot Neptune desert. Uh, and the really cool thing is that the star appears to be heating up, um, heating up the planet, uh, such that it's evaporating its atmosphere. So if you heat a gas, it expands. Um, and if you heat up the gas of a planet enough, it expands, and if it's not massive enough, it then leaves its gravitational uh, gravitational influence uh, and just streams off. And so what you get is a, um, a sort of planet uh, sort of enveloped in this sort of haze that stretches out into its region of space. And so what people are thinking and what's been um, hypothesized by this new paper is that this is uh, the reason that we don't actually see hot Neptunes um, is because they are so. With an Earth, if you heat it up, it's, it's just rock; it doesn't expand particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, with a Jupiter, you heat it up, it expands, and we see we see things called um, that we uh, we call super puffs, um, because they're so heated up, they're just massive but also really not very dense at all. Right. Um, but they have enough mass that you don't actually lose very much of the atmosphere, whereas Neptunes are.
7: Hmm. Neptunes are less massive, and yeah. they can't—they can't keep the gas that puffs out. It just evaporates yeah. off, Precisely. and they, they, they burn sort of, away. Yeah,
0: it, it, so you—you you end up with any Neptune that you try and put close to that star just evaporates, um, which I think is really cool, but also kind of
7: terrifying.
0: <laughs> Stars are kind of scary. Oh uh,
7: yeah. <laughs> Yes. I think it's quite easy to forget, given mm. you know we live in the ideal place for life to exist. We live comfortably into the Goldilocks zone. We don't need to worry about the sun doing many alarming things. You know, occasional solar flares <laughs> aside. But stars can do some really impressive things.
0: So like yeah, I like exactly. So like to actually give some figures on this, GJ three uh G J three four seven IB. Um it's maybe about two billion years old so about half the age of the earth um mm. but mm. since it was formed uh it's probably it might have lost about 30 percent 35 percent of its mass wow. just because mm. of this and in in a few billion years over half of it might have been gone so we end up seeing very very small is this a neptune anymore like we've lost half of its mass
7: mm. Mm. I'm, I'm going to just sort of do i'm not totally sure but uh don't planets like like Neptune, um, well indeed like Jupiter, but Neptune's relevant in this case, have a sort of rocky core themselves?
0: Uh, a lot of them do, yes.
7: Hmm. I wonder then if that could later be taken to be something like uh, an Earth-like planet very close to the star and maybe we don't see a lot of them because they've already evaporated.
0: Yeah. And all that's left
7: um, is the rent.
0: Yeah, this, it, it, it is possible that this is the case. Mm. Um, so. The thing, the the problem is we don't really fully understand the centres of gas and ice giants. So until Juno was launched, uh, which is the spacecraft that's gone to examine Jupiter, um, we had no idea if the centre of Jupiter was solid. Um, We just don't know that, and we still technically don't know if Saturn is solid. And Hmm. it's the same with uh, Neptune and Uranus. Um,
7: We think they might be, but we're not actually sure.
0: Yeah, precisely. I'm not in a position where I can hypothesize at length, um, (laughs) because I don't know enough about planet formation or planetary structure. Um, I am the atmosphere person. um, And once there is no atmosphere, I can't do anything.
7: I mean, for what it's worth, I look at radio and machine learning, you know? I'm even less qualified to talk about this. I don't even work with planets.
0: Yes. Yeah, but... We're all still in front of the microphone,
7: uh,
0: <laughs> so um, that is that is the end of my hot topic. Um, the but we move on to the job watch now. Um, so we, we're attempting to, for those of you that have not heard the job watch section before, we're attempting to in our extra session, our extra editions, talk a little bit about what's going on at Chartle Bank, um, and we haven't really got very much, but we kind of do have something quite interesting in the form of a certain BBC, deeply beloved BBC franchise, uh, which Fiona has more information about, I think.
7: I do. So, uh, our listeners may be aware that quite some time back, uh, there was a Doctor Who episode that was planned to be filmed at Jodrell Bank with the Lovell Telescope. And this was Logopolis, which was the final episode with the fourth Doctor. Tom Baker and his regeneration into the fifth doctor. So the original plan was for the Doctor's death and his following regeneration uh, to occur at Jottle Bank. And the plan was for the Doctor to fall to his death from the Lovell Telescope, which we do not advise. Please do not visit Jotel Bank for this purpose.
0: No, I have um I've been up on the up on the level. It's really high. Mm-hmm. It's about, like, I think you forget how, just quite how big it is.
7: Mm-hmm. Anyway, between one thing and another, it didn't actually happen at the time. And the scenes were actually shot using a model of the level rather than the real thing. But uh, a new special release has, in fact, been filmed, which gives Joel Bank its starring role. So they're fitting in the actual level into the scene.
0: So, yeah, I have no idea how they're actually doing this. I have no I idea. I they've pulled Tom Baker back up to, like, fall off it. I, um, you know,
7: hope yeah. not, not at his age.
0: Yeah, I, I, ooh, I'm just punching a microphone. Um, yeah, no, I think it would be a bit cruel to make him do, but...
7: Mm-hmm. I imagine they must have largely reshot the scenes in the surroundings.
0: Yeah. And mm-hmm.
7: possibly done a little bit of editing to sort of smooth everything out, make everything look a bit more authentic.
0: Anyway, if you want to actually see how that's happened, then um, you can acquire the new special edition. Um, Jake, uh, our esteemed one of our esteemed executive producers, is a massive Doctor Who fan, um, as is Emma, who I am currently sat here because she can't make it. Mm. Um, and so, it,
7: and it was also Emma who passed this on to us. Yes. So, uh, thank yeah. you again. <laughs> um, so, uh,
0: in the that is the end of the odds and ends. Uh, and so now I cannot think of a convoluted link. Yeah. And so therefore I'm just going to waffle for a bit and then introduce Michael Wright and Ian MacDonald with uh, Ask an Astronomer. Hello and welcome to the Ask an Astronomer
2: segment. My name's Mike. Across from me we have an astronomer. Hello. My name's Ian MacDonald um, and I'm going to be answering your questions. Oh, that's good. show runs in quite a logical way. We'll start with a question from me and Ian will answer it. So, first of all, to get us off on such a happy note, do we have any idea when
8: the sun will explode? Well, I do like a bit of existential dread. Uh, the short answer is the sun won't explode, but in about 8 billion years it will run out of fuel. And many people, when they think of stars dying, think they end up exploding violently in a supernova. But only a few percent of stars actually do this. The stars that start out with more than about 8 times the mass of the sun. Most stars have much more quiet deaths. And it's quite a complex process. It's a fate of smaller stars like our Sun and the planets that orbit it, that I actually explore here at Jodwell Bank. We know that most of the Sun's future will look very much similar to what it does now. It's a main-sequence star, which means it burns hydrogen to helium in the centre. And it's not a normal burning reaction like we see on Earth. It's not like setting fire to something, it's nuclear burning. And that's a bit like having a controlled atomic bomb, a bit bigger than the Earth, going off in the middle of the Sun. The Sun will keep this nuclear reaction going until all the hydrogen in its middle is used up. Currently the Sun's fuel tank is about half full, which means it's got another 6 to 7 billion years left. We can't say exactly because we don't know precisely how the mixing processes in the Sun will change during that time. Once the Sun runs of its core fuel, it switches to its reserve tank and starts burning hydrogen outside its centre. That's bad news for us because it makes the star puff up into a red giant. And it'll be a little over two times brighter than it is now, and about two times bigger, which means the Earth gets quite roasty-toasty. It'll be hot enough to boggle the oceans, leaving our planet as a superheated greenhouse, like Venus. However, plate tectonics will also have stopped on Earth, so the oceans might just have sunk into the Earth's crust. But anyway, it's probably not somewhere that you want to live. And Mars might be looking like a better home for us, but not for long. Because over the next few hundred million years, while the sun's a red giant branch star, it'll get a lot brighter. It will reach about 2,000 times its current brightness, slightly more, and it will swell up to about 200 times its current size. It will have swallowed Mercury and Venus whole, and it will have expanded out to nearly the orbit of the Earth. Swallowing these little planets doesn't have very much effect on the Sun. They spiral into the Sun, the Sun just keeps going. By this time, the Earth's surface will easily be hot enough to melt rock, and many rocks will have started vaporizing and forming clouds over our lava planet. So the Earth won't exactly be somewhere you'd want to go on holiday. Now, from this point on, we can't predict exactly what will happen, because the Earth sits in quite a special location. Whether the Earth will survive or not depends on exactly how big the Sun gets as a red giant star. And this depends on how much of the Sun is lost through the solar wind between now and then. It could be as much as a fifth of the Sun's mass. It could be as little as maybe a twentieth. We don't have good enough measurements of red giant branch stars to be certain, and it's likely it will become about as big as Earth's orbit, in which case planet will be tidally sucked into the Sun and destroyed. Every recognisable trace of humanity's existence on Earth will be dispersed into the atmosphere of the Sun. And in the last part of the red giant stage, the horizontal branch and the asymptotic giant branch, the pressure and temperature inside the Sun gets high enough to start burning helium into carbon. It will take the Sun only about 100 million years to use up its supply of helium, but the Sun will still be fusing hydrogen, making fresh helium. And when the helium burning catches up with the hydrogen burning, the Sun's nuclear engine cuts out in a spectacular fashion, with huge nuclear explosions happening inside the star called thermal pulses. These thermal pulses are millions of times brighter than the Sun is now, and that isn't big enough to destroy the Sun, but they're big enough to start turning the whole star inside out, and that brings a lot of the atoms from these nuclear explosions up to the surface of the Sun. This is one of the ways that stars seed the galaxy with life-bearing elements, and if it hadn't happened to previous generations of stars, once they existed before the Sun, we wouldn't be here today. Because as this is happening, the surface of the Sun is becoming unstable too. The Sun's surface currently bubbles away quite happily, it's a bit like a pan of simmering water. But when the Sun expands in its death us, the gravity on the surface goes down, and this is like lifting the lid off a pressure cooker. The Sun will start bubbling violently, throwing its atmosphere off into space. The core of the Sun will light up this expanding cloud of solar atmosphere, probably forming a very faint planetary nebula. Meanwhile, the atoms that made up the Earth, the very atoms that make up our bodies today, will form stardust around the dying sun and use the light of the dying star to sail off into the cosmos. So 4.5 billion years ago, we were stardust, and in a little under 8 billion years into the future, to stardust we will return. I've been looking at this cosmic recycling process for the last 13 years, seeing how stars die, how their ashes get formed from new stars. And it's an important process for understanding why we have the ingredients needed for life on Earth today. It's also useful for understanding whether those conditions exist on other planets throughout the universe. And I hope that in a few years' time we can give you a much more accurate picture of what the eventual fate of the Sun and the Earth will be than what I've given you today. That was the fate of the
2: Sun, and it's not going to explode. So, to stick with this theme, our
8: next question for you is, will the Sun ever go cold then? Oh yes, it will, but it'll take a very, very long time. When the sun dies, it shakes off its atmosphere, and its core will still be thousands of times brighter than the sun is now. Eventually, that will reach a blistering temperature of about 100,000 degrees centigrade. But because it's run out of fuel, it isn't making more energy, so it will start to cool and shrink down, becoming a white dwarf. Now, white dwarfs are the ghosts of stars, not much interesting happens on them. Occasionally rocks might crash land on them, but otherwise just sit there and cool down. A bit like a cosmic potato coming out of the oven. But because it's several thousand billion 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 times bigger than the potato, and several million times hotter in the middle, it'll take a lot longer to reach room temperature. A few tens of millions after it becomes a white dwarf, the sun will be about the same brightness as it is now. But it will still be about 40,000 degrees on the surface, and that will be enough for it to be glowing blue. If the Earth does survive this long, it will now be a much more comfortable temperature. But the surface will be scorched down to the mantle, probably no recognisable atmosphere, and the Sun will be baking our planet in UV radiation. So it's not somewhere we can survive again. After a billion years, the Sun will reach about 10,000 degrees and grow white-hot, and about 3 billion years afterwards, the Sun will cool to its present-day temperature. It will shine a feeble yellow, and if you were standing in Earth's orbit, The Sun would appear about a hundred times smaller than it does today, just a spot, so it would be about as bright as today's Moon. The oldest white dwarfs we know of in the universe are about 12 billion years old, and they glow a sort of orange colour, since they're about 3,500 degrees centigrade. But white dwarfs will keep cooling as the universe ages, and in about 20 billion years from now, the Sun will be glowing dull red, looking a bit like Mars in the sky. And after about 30 billion years' time, it will cool enough to fade from view. Now, it will still be hotter than an oven on the surface, but to our eyes it will have stopped glowing and turned from a white dwarf into a black dwarf. After about 100 billion years, the sun will reach room temperature, and what it would look like at this point is anyone's guess. We don't really understand how matter behaves under these conditions. However, it's probably not a place that you'd want to stand on, because the gravity would be about 200,000 times what it is on Earth today. There might be an atmosphere a few metres thick, but that would quickly give way to a sea of liquid and then solid hydrogen the gravity would be enough to squish you into people pate, at which point your atoms be gradually dispersed into the cold heart of the sun. The sun will keep getting colder and colder until it reaches the same temperature as the space around it. No one knows exactly what temperature that'll be because strange things happen to the very atoms that make up the universe over extremely long periods of time. But after hundreds of trillions of years, all the stars in the universe will have gone out like this and be left a cold, dark and dead place.
2: Such beautiful, hopeful views of humanity there from Professor Ian. So to continue our theme of disappointing and depressing answers
8: to questions, we're going to ask how long humanity would survive without the sun. How long we could survive without the sun depends on how technologically advanced we are at the time, and exactly how the sun was lost in the first place. It's not exactly the sort of thing that gets stuck behind the server. In the vast dead future we just foretold, we can envisage humanity eking up an existence with all sorts of scientific methods. You could make artificial stars, you could live in nuclear-powered spacecraft, you could do a whole host of things. But if we suddenly lost the sun today, we might be in a bit more trouble. We rely on the sun for almost all the energy we receive, either directly through solar power or indirectly through the plant life and fossil fuels that we eat and use. So we can predict a good amount of doom and gloom ahead. Now, as far as we know, stars don't just pop out of existence. So even though we could imagine what would happen if the Sun did spontaneously vanish, we're not going to do that here. Instead, we're going to come up with a rare but realistic scenario about what would happen if the Sun lost us. Now, the most likely reason for this to happen is the Sun passes close to another star, and the gravity of that star pulls the planets out of their orbits. Now, for a star like the Sun, this is a very rare event. It hasn't happened in the last four and a half billion years, It's unlikely to happen in the next four and a half trillion years. We'll have to assume the passing star wasn't so close as to start flying us, but just close enough to temporarily overpower the sun's gravity and start us moving away from the sun, let's say at 40 kilometers a second. 40 kilometers a second is about as fast as we could reasonably expect to go and survive the encounter. A large brown dwarf coming from the galactic halo might be able to do this. Most stellar encounters would just nudge the orbits of the planets a bit so getting this kind of catastrophic ejection event means setting up the encounter just right. Even for a passing star as faint and dim as a brown dwarf, we'd still have a few years warning of its passage, and that gives us enough time to start preparing. We'd also make this happen in the Northern Hemisphere midsummer to give the world's biggest cities the best chance of survival. If you were to do this kind of thing just by turning off the sun, people would be dead in probably a few weeks. But with this question, we've got slightly longer. Now, You'll see a lot of answers to this kind of question out on the internet, and some of them are quite accurate. Some of them, not so much. What's quite clear, though, is that most of us wouldn't survive very long, even with time to prepare. We'd need to take a great deal of time and effort to make sure that a select few people would survive. The minimum number of people you need to keep the human race going is probably about 150, or about the size of humanity's largest base in Antarctica. So this is starting to sound feasible. The first thing that would become important is the cold and the dark. In our scenario, global temperatures would start to drop by about 3 degrees centigrade every day. So after a week, half the continents would be covered by ice, and fuel shortages would start affecting people, mainly in the southern hemisphere. People will start to die from the cold, either because they can't find the fuel or because they don't have enough insulation in their houses. And after about two weeks, the northern hemisphere summer will have turned to winter, and most plants will have started dying, and most of the land will be frostbound. Now the sea here saves a lot of people because it can convect up more heat from deep water, and also holds a lot of heat. So the sea will cool more slowly than the land, and bring warmth to the land that surrounds it. This temperature differential will change the wind and weather patterns, and that will probably bring strong wintry storms off the sea, dumping snow far in lines as the air cools. And shortages of supplies will start affecting most people, leading to riots and looting, general anarchy. Within a few weeks, temperatures of minus 40 degrees become common in most tropical countries. Well-prepared coastal communities might survive a few months, and in the UK we'd be among the last survivors, thanks to the residual warmth of the sea around us, quite well-insulated houses, and a fair few coastal fishing communities that are generally well-stocked with fuels. But after a year or so, even the sea around us would freeze, and our last sources of food would start to die off. Without a society to depend on, our survivors will have to generate their own fuel and food. Food will have to be grown indoors, we will need a couple of acres of heated, lit greenhouses, and any fuel sources that operate on the surface aren't going to work well in the extreme cold. Our selected bunch of survivors doesn't include enough specialists to keep a nuclear power station going for long, or the equipment needed to keep mining fossil fuels through the ice. And cold and lack of fuel will generally reduce us to being cavemen. Actually, caves wouldn't be a bad place for humanity to base their future. Rock holds its temperature pretty well, and deep in a cave, the temperature would actually only drop very slowly, about the rate of a degree per year. Survivors could live in these deep caves, using geothermal energy to provide light to grow plants, and siphoning water from underground aquifers. In this way, small ecosystems could be kept alive, deep underground. It would have to be a graded move, with each generation moving down a few metres into the earth, as the surface layers cooled. But areas with strong geothermal potential, like Iceland could be among the best places for humanity to seek shelter in. From an engineering perspective, however, the greatest challenge probably comes a few years after our ejection from the solar system. Once the temperature in Antarctica drops below about minus 210 degrees Celsius, the atmosphere starts to freeze out. Strong winds would start up, dragging all the atmosphere into a new ice cap on the South Pole, made mostly of nitrogen and oxygen. Our survivor's cave would have to be pressurized to keep the atmosphere in, and that atmosphere might slowly leak out through the porous rocks so a method of extracting a breathable atmosphere from rocks would have to be found. Now, the heat at the centre of the Earth is generated mainly by radioactive decay, so it would be like having our own natural nuclear reactor. Slowly, the temperature at the surface would probably decrease to about 20 to 30 degrees above absolute zero. If these challenges I've described can be met, though, there's no reason for humanity not to survive a few kilometres underground for billions of years. In fact, the biggest challenges we'd have to face might not be so much physical as psychological and political and it's likely that specialised life forms would survive even if we didn't. Life forms like those around oceanic kind hydrothermal of vents and microbes deep in the rocks may be relatively unaffected. A similar method of survival has been proposed for life on Mars. Life can't survive on the surface of Mars today, but if life arose early in Mars' history, it's just possible that it might be clinging to existence deep underground. And similar methods have been proposed for interstellar travel, not by ejecting Earth from the solar system, but in spaceships made out of hollowed-out asteroids, this could be one realistic way in which humans could eventually explore deep space.
2: So well, there we go. We actually had a positive note there. Humanity can survive and perhaps explore deep space. We'll finish off then with a question slightly related to this. we talked about the Earth getting much colder and the
8: problems that causes, but what is the coldest planet? Well, strangely enough, I'm trying to find it. When I'm not looking at dying stars, that is. As we saw in our last question, a good way to get a planet really cold is to get it as far away from a star as possible. And in our own solar system, Neptune's the farthest planet from the Sun. Its temperature is about 60 Kelvin, or about minus 210 degrees Celsius. And it's actually one of the coldest planets we know of. We do know of other cold planets going around other stars. And some of them are probably about the same temperature as Neptune. But we don't know of any planets that are colder. To find colder planets we have to look back at the scenario that we've just looked at. Planets that have been ejected from the host stars. This should happen to a few percent of planets, usually either at the very start or the very end of their star's life. And those planets will now be floating among the stars. In fact, there may be more free-floating planets in our galaxy than there are stars. Billions and billions of them. And the smallest of those planets will be the coldest because they cool down faster. Something the size of Mercury might only be 10 or 20 degrees above absolute zero so something like minus 260 degrees Celsius. These are the, probably the coldest kinds of planets in the universe. They're really difficult to find because they're completely black. They've got no starlight to reflect, and we have to wait for them to pass in front of a star to see them. When they do, light from that star is bent around the planet, making that background star appear slightly brighter, maybe only for a few hours. And using this method, we can find these free-floating planets that are quite happily chucking through space on their own. We've found a handful of these kinds of planets so far, They're the coldest planets we know of to date, but I'll be looking for some more of them as you listen to this.
2: Good luck to you in your search. That was Ask an Astronomer with me, Mike, and Ian.
0: Uh, Thanks for that, Michael and Ian. Uh, Now we're moving on to the feedback. So we've actually had um, a few emails uh, this month. So we've had one from Michael Rockwell, who says that he started listening to our podcast this year. Um, I very much appreciate all you do. I enjoy the news, my favourite is the night sky for this month. Uh Alas, it seems to show late into the month, sometimes after the night sky events have passed on. If there was any feedback here, I would hope it comes out before the new month arrives. Uh, yes, yeah, so we apologise for this, Michael, um, and are aware that we are occasionally late, uh, such as with this very episode.
5: Um,
0: <laughs> but uh you can actually find the uh, Ian Morrison's Night Sky Notes online, um, so we'll post the link on the website as well, um, just as a sort of general thing. We'll probably send it to our Twitter. Um, but if you're just listening here and you happen to have the ability to type uh, into a search engine or something, if you search uh, at www.jb.man.ac.uk slash astronomy slash night sky, uh, you will get um, all of Ian's notes with some wonderful images actually, of the things that you can expect to see and where to look in the sky itself. So, um, if for, I don't know, um, it'd be incredibly un- unexpected. If we were, say, late with an episode, which never happens, as we are very aware. Never. Uh, never. It's um, a record that we are proud of. Um, if we are late, however, um, have a look there, and you will be able to find it. Uh So, yeah, thank you, Michael. Uh Got another email now,
1: actually, I think, are Yes, there was another email from John Murold, Uh with reference to the comments that... Uh, he actually comments about the Green Bank Telescope being unmanned. And uh, the link you have in the null state, there was an operator on site. He was lucky to escape as part of the telescope. Came through the roof of the controlling room. Oh, really sad about that. Also, there was a meeting of a large number of radio astronomers a few weeks before, and they took a group photo with them, all standing below the telescope. And yes, it is a good thing they did not collapse them. Um, also, interesting that analysis of the last data for the telescope showed um, that it had been collapsing for few, several days, as evidenced by the increase of the beam width. Ooh, it seems a really uh, professional.
0: Um, feedback. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I, I should probably just say this is feedback relating to our November Extra, Yes. Um, in which I think it was Crispin talked a bit about the Green Bank Telescope uh, falling down.
7: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it sounds like there was a lucky escape there.
0: Yeah, there was. Yeah, um, so have we got anything else yet?
7: We do. We've got something from Twitter. Uh, this is from Yoda the Oak, uh, who was asking have we looked at the Flickr page recently, as there are some cracking images from John Purvis and Joseph Brimacombe. And I had a look, and they are indeed quite spectacular, as are some of Yoda the Oak's own images. So, if you haven't had a look recently, go and check it out.
0: Um, so, if you fancy getting in touch with us, um, and please do, uh, we love your feedback, um, it's nice to hear from listeners. Uh, tell us what you enjoy, tell us what you which we'd do more, such as be on time. Um, and if you want to do uh, so, you can get in touch uh, through the website at www.jodcast.net. Or you could uh,
1: try to find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast.
7: Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast.
1: On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast.
7: And don't forget that you can send us post, post. The address is on the website.
0: So that's it for this episode. Um, We'd like to wish all of our listeners a Happy New Year, a very Merry Christmas, and we will see you, or yeah, we will see you in the new year with some sort of January episode, which I can guarantee will not come out on January the 1st. Um, (laughs) However, um, thank you very much to everyone who was involved in this episode. Thanks to Morgane Fortin and Justin Braith for their interviews. Uh, the editors were Alex Clark, Lizzie Lee, Tom Scrag, uh, and Tian Berzidenhull. The producer was Jake Staberg morgan Until next time. Join on! John.